Hello, I'm Matthew Gwyther and welcome to this Jericho Chambers podcast produced in association with Stiefel. This time, we're talking about experts, expertise. Don't die of ignorance. We've had enough of experts, said Michael Gove, when decrying those with experience of business and economics who warned that Brexit possibly might not be a good idea. But why is it that gut-based common sense has made such a comeback? Would you employ someone with a hunch to extract your appendix? And with the advent of AI and chat GBT, will the jobs of the experts be taken away by a superintelligence who always knows best? How is it that you can tell you're dealing with a genuine expert? I think real expertise has got to pass three tests. Firstly, it must lead to performance that's consistently superior to that of the expert's peers. Second, real expertise will produce concrete results. Brain surgeons, for example, must be skillful with their scalpels, but must also have successful outcomes for their patients. In the same way, a chess player's got to be able to win matches in tournaments. Finally, true expertise can be replicated and measured in the lab. As the British scientist Lord Kelvin stated, if you cannot measure it, you can't improve it. So we've interviewed three experts in their fields, three individuals at the top of their professional game. They're intentionally diverse, a psychologist, an investment banker, and a paediatric surgeon. If for whatever reason you venture into their fields, they all come heartily recommended. And at this point, I do sincerely apologise that they're all men. It just worked out like that, and it won't happen again. What I've asked all three of them is, firstly, what the nature of their expertise consists of, secondly, how they acquired that superior competence, and thirdly, if they feel that the advent of AI, chat GBT and its spawn, will mean that their like becomes redundant in years to come. Are they all going to get chucked onto the scrap heap of history? Dr. Thomas Chamorro Premuzik is a psychologist and professor of business psychology at Columbia University. His excellent new book, I Human, is about AI and questions what makes us Homo sapiens unique. You must have done a lot of thinking about the, the future of expertise and the professions when you were writing the book. What's going to be going on with lawyers and accountants and architects and even doctors in five, ten years' time? It's important to acknowledge that credentials in the form of what we report in our CVs or resumes or LinkedIn kind of profiles have been kind of devaluated or on the way of being devaluated for some time with you know young kids paying a lot of money to get educated only for employers to then realize that actually anything they need to learn they would need to learn on the job and that they're often overqualified and underprepared and then with kind of a shorter life expectancy or longevity for expertise even before ai came to the picture because if you think about a typical IT professional, lawyer, doctor, marketeer, journalist, whatever they studied when they prepared for it is probably quite different from the reality they face today. So when people talk about lifelong learning or the importance of 
curiosity, surpassing the importance of experience or knowledge. All of that kind of was foundational to the context where AI kind of enters the picture now. Now, to your last point, I think there's a couple of antagonistic or contradicting options, I think, that we need to acknowledge if we want to have a nuanced and balanced uh, take on this. The first is that clearly with ChatGPT, generative AI, and whatever the next iteration is of this, it's very, very easy for people to go from zero knowledge to let's say 50 or 60% of knowledge in a couple of seconds or minutes, and for sure to acquire the illusion of expertise, even if they have a level of knowledge or expertise that is inferior to what they could get if they actually read the full Wikipedia entry on something. So in that sense, I think, you know, chat GPT and generative AI is the intellectual equivalent to fast food. It gives us quick, fast, cheap, and a very addictive, but not very nutritious access to information that isn't very nourishing and that perhaps ought to open the doors or an appetite for the intellectual equivalent of slow food or farm to table. On the credential side of things, I think because it is so easy to retrieve the wisdom of the crowds, which is often more like the ignorance of the crowds via generative AI, ChatGPT, etc. I think actually there might be a revalidation of uh, credentials or true expertise, what psychologists call social proof. So if you actually have not just credentials, but a track record that tells me I should actually trust you, let's say that's you and the pieces or essays you write, it should give me some comfort and some reliability vis-a-vis -vis or versus just going online for a few seconds and you know asking ChatGPT to tell me to ask ask it to inform me about something. So anyway, so I think those are the things or the forces or the potential scenarios that are at stake. So let's jump in and talk about pandemic and COVID. Particularly in the United States, we saw a widespread rejection of expert advice on how to combat it. The example of Fauci having to have bodyguards and protection. There was this sense there that despite the fact that you, you had one of the world's leading experts in public health who spent his whole career thinking about what might happen and indeed did happen, what is going on in the world where you can just have this blank refusal to accept the genuine scholarly and wise advice of those who know what they're talking about? Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of distrust in the institutions and lack of trust in credentials, combined with the very, very clever algorithms and AI that are designed to hijack our ideological preferences and our political orientation and feed us more of what we want to hear and less of what we need to hear. So let's start by acknowledging that pandemics are a very complex phenomenon. Every pandemic, including the one that is still on the way, but mostly kind of uh, fading away now, is somewhat or quite novel. You mentioned Fauci, which is, of course, one of the key and critical issues that 
basically was weaponized and the target of ideological, more, more or less tribal disputes and debates. We could talk about vaccine information and misinformation. We could talk about the origins of COVID, which in the beginning, most people thought, you know, the Wuhan lab theory was, again, fake news. Now people are drifting to accepting that. I mean, the situation we have is that it's, it's very, very complex if you're not a real expert who spends a lot of time investigating this to work out what goes on. When humans are presented with ambivalence, ambiguity, and complexity, our desire to simplify things increases. And if you throw social media and AI into the mix, you can see that algorithms are very, very good and very effective at conveying the illusion of certainty and knowledge without actually informing us. So they increase our intellectual confidence without actually increasing our intellectual competence. Quickly, what happened is that the pandemic turned into a kind of a political or ideological battlefield where if I knew basically where you live or how educated you are or, you know, what car you drive or what you voted in the past elections, it would be very, very easy for me, let alone AI, to predict how you would think about these issues, whether you had three doses or no dose of vaccine and how you would vote in the next election. And that's the opposite of actually thinking or making an effort to test our own assumptions and our hypotheses and actually grow intellectually. And this, you know, happened in extremis with the COVID and the pandemic, but we see it happening over and over again with populism and politics and this wider division and tribalization or polarization of humans anywhere in not just the industrialized world. I think the other thing that I've often thought is that with that spurious intellectual confidence comes the associated sense that you get in the whole sort of row overwoke of the validity of an individual's lived experience. So these days, just because somebody feels something, senses something, that must be right. Just because somebody feels something is right, a fact, correct, or what have you, doesn't make it so, does it? Yeah. And it's almost like, I mean, I think one could think about AI as a tool that has the potential to make us more data-driven. But of course, with the vast data set that it mines, and if you think about AI as a machine for identifying patterns and translating large data sets into insights, of course, you could slice any data in to so many different ways that you could actually tell stories that say it's white or it's black, you know, it's one or the other. And it's important to understand that AI could be this information machine, but it's also a disinformation machine. And by disconnecting us from people who think differently from us, and by conveying this illusion of certainty, I think this as you said, spurious intellectual confidence is a good way to uh, describe it. And I would say always wrong, but never in doubt is probably the defining mantra of our times. And I think it's true, isn't it, that expert knowledge is necessary in a democracy because a democracy is about making decisions based on evidence. If you negate the validity of proper evidence, then how can you have any of the things that you need to power a modern world? I mean, a modern administrative state needs knowledge 
in order to function, doesn't it? I mean, Senator Daniel Moynihan used to say every person's entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to the facts. Of course, you will probably know the Churchill phrase of democracy is the worst of all political systems, except for all the others, right? I'm sure most of our listeners, like you and I, have a natural affinity with democracy and are horrified by the idea of alternatives taking over. But at the same time, I'm not sure if a dysfunctional, populist, corrupt or parasitic democracy, and there are many of these right now and there have been at any point in time, if any of these versions is preferable to a benevolent dictatorship or one in which you have a competent and honest government that actually makes decisions for people. Now, there aren't that many of this. I think outside Singapore is difficult to think about such examples. So obviously, they're not that easy to attain and maybe they don't scale very well. But the amount of knowledge that people need to have for democracies to function is something that we often neglect. And of course, in any matters, it's harder and harder to be not just an expert, but to even be informed because there's a lot of information that leads to a lot of confusion. As they say, if you're not confused, you're probably not paying attention. And I think at the same time, life is, you know, we're all very busy. Attention is hijacked and co-opted by many, many different activities. So the typical human, even if they're curious, intelligent, and well-meaning, doesn't have time to pause and truly dive deep into whatever topic uh, um, matters to them on a given day. Finally, let's talk about one of the things that I found most interesting in your book, and that's the demise of curiosity. What you say in there is that AI spoon feeds information to us, and you say that we need to rediscover the habit of, of asking why and work actively to add more variety and unpredictability into our lives. And in a sense, that that's almost a definition of expertise and knowledge and wisdom, isn't it? Because nobody thinks they know absolutely everything. The person with a truly hungry mind, particularly if they're hungry for their particular area of expertise, is they want to learn more. They don't feel like they have the answers to everything, do they? Yeah, and I think, I can't remember if it's a Plato quote, or if it isn't, you know, quotes always sound, sound more prestigious when they're elevated by <laughs> Greek philosophers. Uh, but it's something along the lines of uh, the beginning of expertise is the realization that you don't know anything at all, right? And so today, that gap, that uncomfortable realization that actually you are ignorant on a certain subject is very easy to miss because. People feel that just because they are connected to the web or they can access ChatGPT or Google or whatever, they already are sort of experts in everything, even if they don't even spend two seconds to actually do the search. And of course, I think it's rather sad that the term deep learning today is associated with artificial rather than human intelligence, when in fact that has been not just one of the profound and critical drivers of expertise, but one of the most enjoyable things about the development and acquisition of expertise, which to be sure, matters more than the end product. I think it's about the journey rather than the destination, mostly because you never really finish being an expert in the sense of being a finished product. I mean, being an expert probably means having this intellectual humility 
and being self-critical enough to actually worry a lot about what you don't know and continue to almost exasperate about needing to do more and to learn more on a certain subject. So in a way, it's, it's like a positive version of imposter syndrome. Now, I'll trump your Plato with Aristotle. It, it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Very good. And I'm sure our listeners, just like myself, are now wondering if you had to look that up on ChatGPT or Wikipedia. Brainy which reminds me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> that, 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 that reliable source of knowledge, which reminds me of that episode when David Brent, uh, Ricky Gervais, and the, the original version of The Office, is trying to intimidate an intern ahead of the preparation of the pub quiz by showing that he knows a lot. And every time the intern actually quotes Dostoyevsky or something, Ricky Gervais disappears <laughs> for 10, 15 minutes and does a search, which was one of the early versions of this, doing an online search, and then returns, you know, out-quoting him with something that he just picked up. Gareth Hunt is an investment banker at Stiefel and leads their law firms and litigation finance advisory team. He's especially interested in how artificial intelligence might erode the status and need for professionals, including lawyers. Well, Gareth, welcome to the podcast again. We haven't spoken for two or three years since you were last on the Jericho Stiefel microphone. And we're going to talk today about experts and expertise specifically relating to the law and lawyers because that's the area that you've followed very closely for sort of five years now. One of my first questions for you is to what extent do you think that the legal profession is is threatened by AI? I think the the, the profession will continue to evolve. We will we have seen a movement towards ALSPs and towards outsourcing, um, where the more commoditized workflows have been taken out of the larger law firms. And it's likely that AI accelerates that. I think we can see a world where AI replaces a certain portion of your associate population, but your associates of today are your superstar partners of tomorrow. So as we think of the industry, which at the moment is a pyramid where you recruit lots of associates and you whittle them down to a limited number of star partners, we think that's more likely to become a column where you're looking for your superstar associates in the milk ground, knowing they will go all the way and you don't need the rest of your associate base because they can be replaced by AI. Now, we've seen celebrated examples of chat GBT being given the US bar exam and doing pretty well in that and giving opinions for the Supreme Court arguing in favor of same-sex marriage and professors in law schools were quite impressed by that. But I wonder if you're doing a kind of billion dollar M&A deal and there's an enormous amount at stake there, could you see a point at, at which clients would be willing to sort of hire a robot AI rather than a partner on sort of $1,500, $2,000 an hour? Would it, just, would it be just too risky? Right here, right now, when we look at transactions, people aren't hiring the partner to perform processes and fill out forms. They're hiring the partner for 
three decades of experience for instinct, for the ability to read the room, the ability to think tactically. And it's very difficult to see that AI, as it stands today, can replace those skills. When you look at the components of a transaction that an AI possibly could step in and perform, they're the more functional layers that are performed by more junior members of the team. So right here, right now, we don't think there's a threat. But obviously, AI is expanding and improving its capability extremely rapidly. That statement is pro hopefully accurate today. Goodness only knows whether it will be accurate in five years' time. What do you think they feel in the legal profession at the moment? Do you think they feel threatened? I think it's very new. I think people are aware that this issue is, is no longer on the horizon and is more immediate. I think people are starting to um, attempt to calibrate what it might mean for them individually and for their firms more broadly. And I think businesses that operate in areas of the market that are very readily suited to the utilization of AI, and those are very data-intensive areas of the legal market like personal injury, they're actively embracing AI, but they are literally in the foothills of doing that. See, it is true, isn't it, that to become an expert and to become a professional, Malcolm Gladwell's book suggested it's sort of 10,000 hours necessary to, to get to the point where you are that expert. A lot of it, it seems to me, is wisdom and experience, isn't it? That in a way AI can, can, can do that, but the question then becomes, what's its judgment like, isn't it? I completely agree with that. I, I think those years of experience give you an understanding of the, the multiple outcomes that might result and how to control a process through that. I think they also give you instinct and I think they give you the ability to read other people uh, and the multiple counterparties that are always involved in very large transactions and understand how you plot a way through. Right here, right now, it's very difficult to see how AI replaces that. It feels that we are some years away from that. I, I think the next step in the road is your very experienced human partner where they have some human associates on their team and that's augmented by AI performing an increasing number of the processes for them. Now, you've dealt with a number of members of the legal profession as an, as an expert yourself. You're an investment banker. So what would you have said that you're expert in? I, I think we sell experience and trust. The, the most persuasive way to sell your services as an investment banker is to point out that you have done transactions that are relevant many, many, many times before. And that gives you credibility. It gives you the ability to understand how you will move your way through a transaction to the client's benefit and you'll be able to remain two steps ahead and see all the possible outcomes before they arrive. So, I, I, And then, crucially, you people have to be able to rely upon you. They're putting their individual interests or their family's interests with you and they have to know that you as agent are going to act in their interests. I will give away one of the, the tricks of our trade and um, which is the best thing you can ever say when you're pitching for new businesses I don't know. You should always, always make sure that you use the phrase I don't know once in a pitch and it immediately validates everything else you've said as you're being something you have confidence in. So we, we always look to actively identify what we do not know as well as what we do. And that works.
with with sensible potential clients. Yeah, we think so. I mean, it has the it, obviously we would only say it when it was true, um, but we we find one of the most powerful credentializing statements you can make as an advisor is to admit when you do not know, and obviously the inverse is equally true that the worst thing you can do is to claim knowledge that you do not have and to risk that being found out, which is catastrophic for your position as an advisor. We've talked on the podcast and interviewed Martin Wolf about his book on the future of democracy and capitalism. And there is growing resistance, I think, to opinion. There's a sense that we heard from Michael Gove, do you remember, before the Brexit vote, you know, we've had enough of experts. There's this sense that people's gut instincts for things are somehow more valid what do you think about that? Do you think that's a troubling development? I don't really have a, a view as to whether it's good or bad. I, I think it, it's an inevitable consequence of um, the growth of social media and um, people's ability to, to broadcast their own views more broadly. There's obviously more data available so that people can get through to end statistics, but that then opens up the possibility that um, people either misunderstand those statistics, they misrepresent them, they mislead through omission. My personal view is that mainstream journalism is as guilty as that as uh, your average YouTube podcaster. So uh, I think that it's very, very difficult these days to find any particular source of information, whether you're left wing, right wing, whether you read the mainstream news or whether you just listen to podcasts on TikTok, I think it's very difficult to find a single source of information where you think I can trust that absolutely. You feel that personally, do you, that you don't even believe the FT or the BBC or the Wall Street Journal? It seems to me, you know, institutions like that have got a lot invested in telling the truth, haven't they? So we got used to playing a game with our my children are teenagers and we played a game on holiday and we would find a news event and then we would read the Guardian's coverage and the Telegraph's coverage and then my, my children would we would we would laugh it was difficult to recognize that it was actually the same news event that had been reported in those two different entities so what we've tried to do with our kids is obviously you know in that that very middle class old fashioned liberal kind of way is to get them to to believe anything they want to believe but make sure that they have researched it properly and they have checked the veracity of their sources but i think you have to try and find the truth whatever that that, that may be we work in an industry and actually it's interesting covering legal services companies and the sorts of companies we cover it's a very data centric world and the data is binary it is either correct or incorrect because we typically assess historic outcomes that's for us makes our job very easy provided we have the capability to manipulate the data appropriately obviously there there are lots of other issues that are grayer than that but I'm, I'm very thankful that I operate in a world where particularly looking at historic litigation damages have either been won or not won and cases have either been won or lost and the, the world is divisible down to numerical units that you can, can analyze accurately. Because I suppose one of the things you are an expert in is analyzing markets and markets can't lie can they? they a market is a market if you take a law firm out there and you say well look we think it's worth this when you IPO it in a funny sort of way, the market is the expert, isn't it? Because you can't argue with it. 
I've certainly done the job for a long time. I'm not sure I call, would call myself an expert, but I've done it for a long time. There is no test other than the market. And it is the aggregation of the views of many, many participants, all of whom are hugely intelligent people who have incredibly powerful economic incentives. They can only express their view economically with their money or someone else's on which they charge fees. And so one has to believe that the expression of those views is sincere because it would be completely crazy to do anything else. In that regard, it's a, a very pure expression of what all of those various market participants think. That doesn't mean, as we can see from history, that markets do get caught by manias and fads and that 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 just of course the course of my career let alone the last 200 years there's ample evidence of that but were those views held sincerely at that particular point in time by all of those market participants that they, they absolutely were bruce richard is a retired pediatric surgeon who specialized in the repair of cleft lip and palate in children it took him a long long while to become expert in his field he didn't make it to consultants until the age of 43. He talks about the coming of robotics in surgery and the difficulties of passing on his expertise to coming generations of surgeons in training. And we discuss the expertise involved in performing a Brazilian butt lift. In the discussion of expertise, take us through initially your training and your career in a nutshell? I mean, how long did it take from the word go, you having started your medical training to becoming a consultant in, in plastic surgery? Okay. So it's five years in medical school. It's then uh, variable for different specialties, but it's of the order of 10 to 12 to 14 years to become a consultant. I kind of was different, as lots of us are. I wanted to work in a low middle income country. And so I went off for two years after my first three years as a surgeon training and worked in a leprosy hospital in the Himalayas. I then returned and com completed my qualifications as a surgeon to the sort of middle grade, another four years. Then went back to the Himalayas and worked for another nine years with a wife and then had three children out there. Then I returned to this country as a massively experienced, but not officially allowed to be consultant because they changed all the rules in those many years I was overseas. And so I had to tick a few boxes again and do a two or three years catch up training, be allowed to sit the exams. And then I was able to get my dream job of being a consultant plastic surgeon for children with cleft lip and cleft palate. So uh, how old were you then? I started medical school at 19 and became a consultant at 43. Why is it that when you kind of look at expertise in surgery, the, the conclusion that I've read about is that surgeons are experts in an adaptive way? That kind of suggests that you may be an expert, but you're always learning as well, aren't you? Oh, gosh, absolutely true. So the one part is anatomy. We are experts in the human anatomy because we need to be able to know what we're going to find when we cut through something. And we need to know about all the variants in that. But also we're adaptive because every human being is different, different thicknesses, depths. We're going to find things which we weren't expecting to find. And we need to be able to manage that. And then I think, especially with the cleft palate, I don't think there's an operation when I don't learn again or improve or develop my technique because it's it's the learning curve for that operation is much much longer in my opinion than that of the cleft lip which i think is more geometrical problem and, and is probably slightly easier to 
to learn and to teach. And what about robots, Bruce? What about In robots? 15 years' time, are there going to be no more Bruce's? Are they just going to be sort of 2001 HAL-style machines that do what you've spent Well, your, this is definitely not my area in. of expertise. But, but what do you, what, what's your hunch? My hunch is that they might be good for some things that humans are not so good at. So, for example, we do, as plastic surgeons, a thing called free flaps, where we harvest a great chunk of muscle with skin, with nerves, with its own blood supply, and cut it out of one part of the body and transplant it into another part of the body. And then we have to join together these tiny arteries, tiny veins, nerves, etc., down the microscope. And uh, as the years go by, I'm technically less competent to do that down the microscope. And I usually get one of my more junior colleagues, as long as he's good enough, because <laughs> you don't want to miss this one up. If you fail, the whole thing dies. Not the patient, but the flap. So there's an example where a robotic ability to do that anastomosis of those tiny vessels and get it right first time within an hour so everything's alive might be a good idea. But the, the, dissecting out a cleft palate, for example, is looking for three little muscles and finding them. It's all I do it all down the microscope as well. But it's such a learnt three-dimensional environment that, yes, a robot can do it, but I'm not sure it does it any better or faster or more intuitively or is able to manage. I mean, we have robots that we can operate ourselves. So we have robotic surgery at the moment where we hold the handles with haptic controls and can manipulate the instruments. Of course, I can just put my finger into a child's mouth and I've blocked my view completely of what I'm operating on another 10 centimeters deeper in the child's face. So we're working down this tiny, tiny hole to repair a very complex three-dimensional structure. And maybe robots can get round those corners more easily, a bit like laparoscopic surgery has. We have seen at conferences in recent years, robotic surgeons from Italy doing the palate repair. I think we all universally thought, that's no better than me. Now tell me about the other side of your expertise when you work doing nose jobs in the private sector. Because you're, you're very interesting on this, and we, when I've spoken to you about it before, what you say, if I'm correct in understanding, is that it's not just the mechanical process of the surgery that, that matters, but you're treating a patient, you're treating a whole person. Tell me classically some stories about what can happen in the, in the private sector when you're doing aesthetic plastic surgery on the nose, for example. So rhinoplasty or aesthetic rhinoplasty is the changing the shape and possibly some of the function of someone's nose, external nose. And patients come with huge expectations of what that might achieve or what they want. And it's really important to get into their thinking as to why they want something. I, I always say I'm as much a psychiatrist or a psychologist as I am a surgeon in these things. Most patients will start with something like, when I ask them, what is it, why have you come to see me today? The answer might be along the lines of, I hate my nose. I say, well, that's a, you know, can you explain that a little bit more to me? And they, some of them will just say, it's obvious, isn't it? And I, you know, to be sarcastic, which I never am and never would do, I'd say, well, I can't operate on something that's obvious to you if it isn't obvious to me. But that's really what I need to explain to them next. So I usually get them to stand in front of a mirror I stand behind them. I say, just show me, show me, explain to me with your hands and 
what it is you features of your nose you don't like but let's look at some photographs of your nose what is it you don't like and that gets a beginnings of an understanding of what they think is long or short or wide or bumpy or strange or asymmetric but if it still remains emotive language and doesn't get anywhere close to anatomy then there's usually a mismatch here between what they're feeling hoping for and in terms of their life their relationships are they going to get sex or not dependent on the shape of their nose these two are not dependent on each other <laughs> and, and, and that unfortunately many patients don't understand that or think they do whatever but what happens then these days because we live in a sort of consumerized world where i've no doubt some people tip up in harley street thinking that they're going to the equivalent of a bmw showroom you know yeah. saying well i you know i want this 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 and this as extras and you're going to give it to me what what happens when you say, well, hang on a minute, I'm not comfortable about doing so if this? So if I'm not comfortable about doing the surgery, which is not always, I would say it's only about 20%, uh, 80% of folk who turn up say, I hate the bump on my nose, or I hate the fact that it's bent to the left, or the tip is too wide, or I can't breathe through it. And I examine them. If I agree with them, we're in business. I explain what I can do. I show them software, three-dimensional reconstructions of how it would look, and they, you know, we go through the risks, etc. If, however, I get a strong feeling that they don't, and it's something more to do with their emotions or their relationships or lack of them, then I will gently put them through some psychological profiling. I do this for everybody anyway to make sure they don't have a thing called body dysmorphic disorder, which is where they believe something about a part of their body and you fix it, and then they just move on to another part of their body, but sue you for the first one. Most of us as plastic surgeons are trying to avoid those kinds of patients. My responsibility ethically is to do what's right and best for the patient. I'm not a, a robot that does what I'm just told to do. What about the Brazilian butt lift? I mean, what possible justification can there be for doing something like that? I just don't know. It's not my area of expertise. I, I don't read those articles, look at those photographs. I don't do them. So I, I guess in one sense, I just can't help you with that, that question. But the sort of thing I might do is someone who's lost a testicle and would like a false testicle put in the sack. Now I'll do that because they feel uncomfortable at the gym getting changed to go swimming because someone might notice that they've only got one ball hanging there. This is the problem with cosmetic surgery. Where's the definition of normal? extremes of normal smallness or bigness or just wrong shape and then there's perception of wrong shape now that's in other areas like perception of obesity or anorexia nervosa those are psychological problems to a large extent so in my world of surgery that would be a psychological problem to have a perception of something wrong with their body that really isn't something wrong with their body so we need to create a narrative in our society that it's okay to be different uh, which we've done with sexuality and lots of other things we haven't done it with human form yet and what about the training issue with doctors because that's another thing that changed didn't it in the 80s and 90s it was famous your profession for sort of appallingly long hours working one-on-one -on -one off nights and things like that and that doesn't exist anymore which is probably a good thing. But I've also heard it said among younger doctors these days that they don't feel that they're getting enough experience. They're not seeing enough things and being able to do enough things themselves to learn during the process. Yeah. Do, do you think that is a problem? I do, I'm afraid. I've, I've spent a lot of time in my years as a trainer trying to encourage confidence in folk who feel that they 
don't have enough confidence because they don't have enough experience and they're living and working in a culture now where that if something goes wrong someone's going to say how many of these have you done whoever taught you how to do this now in my specialty plastic surgery you will become a consultant and need to do certain types of reconstructions that you may never have seen but only have read about because you simply may not come across those problems in your 10 years of 12 years of training uh, and then it comes down to do you know the anatomy do you have confidence to do these kinds of procedures then do it in this situation and in the last 20 years of Birmingham Children's Hospital I've invented three new operations which have never been done before and to each one I've said to the parents mum you know I've never done this before but I think these circumstances need us to do this because it will be so much better than what we would have done otherwise and mm -hmm. each parent said, thank you, yes, Mr. Richard, I accept that. And I, I did one and it worked, and I did one and it worked, and I did one and it didn't work. And I kept on going like that until I'd done 10, and then said, okay, so we've done 10, and one of those 10 didn't work, the third one. And, and then it's become normal, and then I publish it, and now loads of people do that procedure. But if we don't have that learning curve and don't take those risks and don't have that confidence, we're not going to progress the specialty. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because what you're saying, I think, is that you are an expert in something, but at the same time, the greatest experts do have open minds about yes. things. They never think it's the end of story. There's always something else potentially coming down the line to add to your knowledge and your skill. And you need to be able to be wise and accountable to others. So most hospitals have an ethics committee within the hospital where you can discuss an issue like that. For example, we've started an operation in Birmingham Children's Hospital ten, for four years, five years ago now, for children who are going blind because they've lost the sense of feeling in their eyeball cornea, the surface of their eye, and they go blind within two or three years just from rubbing their eye because they can't feel it. And we've taken the technique that's been used in, in Canada already by some others in older children, and I transplanted a nerve from the leg into the face and then crossed the face the other side and produced nerve endings through a microscope and plugged it in with my ophthalmological colleagues who really managed the whole program and managed Paraluca and his team. And we've done it. We've got these children to get the sense of feeling grow back into their eyeball and not go blind. I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> but we had to do something we had never done before. I have transplanted muscles before and nerves. I've just never done that nerve in that place. I enjoyed the operation. I enjoyed looking down the microscope and doing a nerve to a place I've never done before. But it worked. And we've done more, we've done more, we've done more. That must be one of the things that does set you apart from other professions as well, the enormous sense of satisfaction that you must get when you go home at the end of a long day and you know that you've done something that's been truly transformative and for a child as well yeah it is it is wonderful and i retired three years ago but just last month someone ran across the, the car park at tesco and mr richard mr richard do you remember so and so you'd operated on her 17 years ago she's now happily married and she's got this child and blah 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 and she looks wonderful thank you thank you thank you i mean it, it is an absolute privilege to be able to put a scalpel into a child's face well there you have it. There were so many sentiments in these three interviews that are worth writing down and remembering. I think one of my favourites is that the true beginning of expertise is the realisation that you know nothing at all. Or maybe you liked, if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. What I think 
these three individuals have in common was a sense of humility and self-criticism that's vital in an expert. They have open minds. They're still thinking all the time about what it is they do and how they might improve on it. And amid the tribalization that we've seen of humans at the moment, with that certainty of knowledge, they're all good examples of the limits of our knowledge and the true humility of the true expert. I'm Matthew Gwyther. Thank you for listening.